Hey everyone, I'm with uh, Matt and Dean from the Magnificast podcast, and uh, Chris, my co-host, wanted to be here tonight, but had to move some work shifts around. Uh, really excited though, we're going to discuss a book that was just released by Foreign Language Press called A Commentary on the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. And this is a very special book. It was written by the Christians for National Liberation. And this is a uh, organization. It's one of 18 underground organizations in the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, um, which is uh, one of a three-part wing in a, uh, a revolution that's happening in the Philippines uh, right now against uh, U.S. imperialism, uh, against their uh, fascist puppet states, and the uh, landlord and comprador bourgeoisie there. So um, this is a really fascinating book. Uh, again, these are Christians. Um, these are Marxist-Leninist Maoists in particular, and they are engaging a Catholic theological authoritative book and uh, they're, they're engaging the social doctrine both as Christians and as communists and wrestling with like what the compendium says and um, how it can speak to the real, like objective, material, living conditions and lives of the people in the Philippines. So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting and fascinating book. Uh, it's very up the faith in capital and Magnificast alley. So, um, and it's also been like a year, I think, since uh, you all, Matt, Dean, and I, we, we've done anything together. So I'm, I'm really excited to kind of hang out with you all tonight and discuss this book. Yeah, same, same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good to be back with you, Chase, in particular. It's been fun to see what's going on at Faith and Capital. And especially, this is a, a good excuse. I think Matt and I got this book. We didn't know what to do with it. And uh, here you were being like, let's do this thing with it. So <laughs> thanks for that opportunity, forcing us to actually read it. Cool, yeah, yeah. It's a massive book. It's 500 pages uh, for anyone who wants to pick it up uh, at Foreign Language Press. But yeah, 500 pages is a lot. But I really, really find each uh, of the parts or the chapters really interesting. And yeah, let's see where the conversation goes tonight. So we want to do three things tonight. We're going to start off by just generally riffing on really what we perceive this book is trying to do or say. Then the bulk of the conversation is... Matt, Dean, and I, we all took specific or like particular chapters, and we're just going to uh, kind of lay out what the chapter seems to be saying to us, and maybe we'll um, riff uh, back and forth with one another on on some of those points being made. And then in the end, we'll wrap up on asking like, well, what do we kind of do with this kind of book? So let's, I'm all about just diving in, um, unless let's you all it. have any, all right, cool, cool. No, no, I'm, I'm ready to dive in. This, right this is a giant big book. Sweet. So, uh, I mean, Matt or Dean, why don't you all start us off? What do you think this book was really trying to do or say? So I think that this book is really fascinating because I don't think anything really exists like it. I mean, not in the United States, at least, for sure. It's such an interesting thing. Um, a revolutionary organization that is, you know, particularly addressing the social teachings of Christianity is a really, uh, I guess, outside the ordinary thing. Uh, you're right to say that it's special because it definitely is that. It is, um, at least from my perspective, it's not like an academic book, right? Like it's not like a, it's not like a scholarly work on on theology. And I'm not trying to say that to like downplay its like merit or whatever at all. Uh, but I guess what I'm trying to say is it's like it's written out of the context of a social movement, and I think it's written for you know organizing that social movement further. It's not you know it's not a a book for universities um, <laughs> necessarily. 
Um, so I think that's really fascinating. But it is just kind of explaining the ways that um, at least the CNL thinks that the Catholic uh, social teaching is um, both right <laughs> or creates like an opening for um, for revolutionary action and also the many ways that it is wrong <laughs> in the way that steers people in the wrong direction um, of like the, of the Catholic social teaching. Um, the other cool thing I want to say about this book is that it is from Foreign Language Press and it is giant, but they do send you a really cool um, bookmark <laughs> of Ho Chi Minh, and I think that was really great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think they stuff like four or five in, in my book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think uh, it's really fascinating uh, to think through that question too. What sort of I don't know, what is the book for, or what does it come out of, what is it doing, and it's something we'll have to talk through, I think, to try to discover. Um, it, it's it's such a bizarre kind of text in the most interesting way, like, <laughs> bizarre in the way that you're like, I want to figure out what's going on here. Uh, Matt and I were talking a little bit about it just this week, and I keep trying to sort out, like, who would be the person who would pick up this book, read it, and then think to themselves, I'm convinced, like, I'm ready to go, you know, ready to join. Like, what's the kind of imagined audience? And what what I mean by that is it's a, a, a really very careful dialogue with a, a document called the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, which for people who don't know, it, that is a, a document that was put together in the early 2000s at the request of Pope John Paul II. So Catholic social teaching is a really kind of bizarre, like wide ranging collection of stuff like cobbled together from papal writings and other writings, basically originating in the 1800s. And Pope John Paul II was like, we got all these encyclicals floating around. Let's just get it all in one spot. We can kind of provide some summaries on this or that point. And that's the compendium uh, and also extremely long book uh, full of the Catholic Church's official ideas about everything from what does it think solidarity is? to what does it think the relationship between labor and capital is. And so it's a, a book that if you're like a theology nerd, you have to deal with it. Or if you're a person working in the Catholic church or a Catholic social movement, uh, you you have to kind of use it and, and engage it and so on, because that's, you know, that's all part of it. That's, that's the orders from the top <laughs> in the church. Uh, so to see this revolutionary movement decide to engage that kind of text in an intentional way is so interesting. So you know, I, I guess uh, I can't imagine a lot of, for example, like the toiling masses of the Philippines are probably not reading the compendium of the social doctrine of the church. <laughs> but you have to imagine a handful of seminarians probably are right or uh, maybe some bishops or, or religious uh, sisters and brothers and so on. So anyway, I think I'm still trying to sort out who it's for, or what it's doing, but I can't help but be just very fascinated by it. I've never seen like Matt was saying anything like it. Uh, a revolutionary movement really going, you know, passage by passage sometimes uh, in the compendium to try to sort out what's usable in this revolutionary moment and where does it think the compendium, you know, falls short of uh, what they need in the Philippines. Yeah, and I mean, I grew up evangelical. I've never read a split of the compendium. Um, I've only read just a few cyclicals, but I personally, I felt like it was a very accessible read for someone who has never read any of the social doctrine of the Catholic Church. And yeah, I, I guess, I mean, what do you all think? To me, I think anyone who's in seminary, especially, but anyone who's like vaguely interested in both religious studies, Christianity in particular, perhaps, and politics, um, political struggle, uh, I, I think this would be a, a really interesting and inviting text because again, yeah, as you all said, it's not 
it's not like questioning the nature of God. You know, it's, it's not asking like, well, is the Bible this or that? It's diving into more political questions around the compendium says this about God and people. Therefore, what does this politically mean, right? Um, what are the implications for relations between laboring and capital? Um, uh, what do we mean by the common good? And, and what should we do? You know, is private property, does it have a, a space and in, in, in a place in the kingdom of God, right? Who are the real terrorists? You know, what do we mean by imperialism? All that stuff. So for me, I'm thinking like anyone in seminary, any pastor, minister, um, chaplain out there, or maybe you're not in those formal institutions and you're just generally interested in uh, perhaps like communism, Marxism stuff and in religion and Christianity. I think this would be a cool book to, to dive in. You'll learn about both Christian stuff and you'll learn about, say, imperialism and um, and how the U.S. has related to uh, the, the masses across the world. What do you think? Totally. I mean, if you're a person in the United States and, and you're <laughs> you're interested in the extremely <laughs> the extremely niche interest that we have on our podcast, <laughs> That's this true. one this one's for you for sure. <laughs> I mean, get, you can read it. You get the cool Ho Chi Minh um, bookmark, and you're gonna have a great time. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. We're not trending. I, I don't think we will be anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, um, for sure. I mean, I think there's something interesting in the book. Uh, it's definitely a super fascinating phenomenon, definitely for religious studies. I mean, you know, for people who are interested in the ways that politics and religion work together or don't work together, uh, you know, however that disjunction looks for, for you in your brain, this is a cool book that works it out in a really particular way. Um, I think it's even different than the way the other Christian Marxist dialogues have worked it out. So like as a as a product of a movement, as like an artifact of a real revolutionary movement, I think there's something really fascinating in here for people to really consider. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Dean, Dean said it is about, you know, the Catholic social teaching, which is like a really niche sort of thing. And maybe if you're Catholic, you would figure, you might find it hard to figure out like why you should care. And, you know, maybe that's a good question. But I think that there are some things that this book kind of goes through that are, um, they are Catholic social teaching specific, but I think that they kind of pan out in Christianity in different kinds of ways. Like, um, you know, so I, I, I'm going to talk about in a little bit here, the, uh, the section about the contradiction between capital and labor. And it really emphasizes the ways that the, the Catholic church kind of preaches a type of class harmony. And that's true. I mean, within Catholic social teaching, that is exactly what they do. And um, the CNL in this book, the Christians for National Liberation, they talk about all the reasons why that's really complicated. And, you know, the way that the church does it is maybe not the best way. Um, that being said, though, I think that like other types of uh, Christianity kind of inherit some of these assumptions about social teaching, even if they're not explicitly doing it or whatever. I mean, I, I think that you would be hard pressed to find a uh, like a mainline <laughs> Christian denomination, a Protestant denomination that is like not uh, falling back in some ways on like, uh, you know, the harmony between classes or, or, or something like that. So, you know, it is about uh, Catholicism specifically, but I think that there's, you know, some broad, um, broad conversations that intervenes in, within Christianity that are pretty interesting. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and I think it's true. You know, I said uh, <laughs> there's kind of a handful of maybe maybe like religious specialists who would find the book especially interesting. But I, yeah, I don't mean to say that um, you there wouldn't be anything of value for kind of an average reader. Um, and, and I think that's important too. The book is obviously, you know, written with the intention of trying to uh, really lay out not only uh, those kinds of issues within the Christian tradition, 
but even laying out the situation of the Philippines as the, the revolutionary movement sees it, right? So trying to contextualize the history of imperialism in that country, trying to contextualize uh, at least its reading of the history of socialism, uh, <laughs> a controversial reading uh, to be sure, but nevertheless, um, you'll, you'll get it in there. Uh, so it's, it's trying to make those things accessible in such a way that is, uh, you know, maybe like <laughs> you don't need to have a seminary education in order to like understand, I don't know, why Ferdinand Marcos was a bad guy. <laughs> and I think right. that's important. Though on the, on the other end, too, I, I'm thinking, you know, that that's maybe my perspective about being a person in the United States picking up this book. It's sort of like a, an interesting curiosity. But I mean, I can definitely see how were I a person in the Philippines um, who um, the, the religion in the Philippines, in case uh, listeners don't know, is predominantly Catholic. It's like 83 uh, percent Catholic, um, I think. Um, so, I mean, you know, if you were in the Philippines and you were a Catholic person, I think this book could actually be a probably a pretty powerful organizing tool. Um, you know, if you're really invested in um, the Catholic social teaching or if you're really invested in your church community. And, um, you know, you're trying to you're an activist with CNL or whatever, and you're trying to organize people. I think this book kind of gives you a lot of resources to have uh, deep conversations with people and, um, you know, agitate them <laughs> in a fun way. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess before we move on to our three different chapters that we'll all kind of explicate a little bit, I just want to also throw out. You know, Dean and Matt mentioned how you know, the book is engaging the Catholic social doctrine, kind of pulling it out and saying this is what uh, the Christians for National Liberation think it, they get right, think uh, this is what it, they think it gets wrong. Um, there's also this general repetitive emphasis on how Christians and communists can complement um, one another in their political commitments for liberation and the pursuit of peace. That's a main theme throughout every single chapter. Uh, there's also a repeated emphasis on imperialism uh, and specifically U.S. imperialism being the primary cause of and determining factor for the exploitation and oppression of the billions of toiling people across the world today. And that's, I, I think, a, a really basic contradiction that the book is trying to, you know, lay some heavy emphasis on. And then finally, I also think, like, the reader would definitely want to walk away uh, convinced to support the National Democratic Revolution um, and, and specific, uh, specifically the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, which is um, basically the, the Democratic Front is, is one of a three-part kind of puzzle uh, we call them like the, the magic weapons in a protracted people's war. Um, and these are Marxist, Leninist, Maoists waging this. And so, so yeah, I, I think that part of the whole book is to, uh, to gain support and to promote the national democratic revolution of the Filipinos um, against uh, U.S. imperialism and the fascist puppet states there, uh, the uh, comprador bourgeoisie and the landlords. Chase, this is a question I, have, I was having, uh, I thought about uh, asking you. So Dean and I, um, I don't know, we're not Maoists. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know the language. We don't know the rhetoric. And I think some of it is, uh, I mean, this book is, is sort of latent with it. Uh, as someone who is, I think, more uh, well-versed in like the Maoist like, political philosophy, when you were reading this book, like, was there anything interesting that you picked up on that was um, maybe like uh, different than other sort of like Maoist stuff or... Um, I don't know. How did that work out for you? Like, did, Was this like um, an enlightening political education that kind of took things in a different direction? Or do you think this is just like the natural extension of like Maoist political philosophy? 
That's a cool. That's a cool question. And then I want to I want to flip it and turn it towards you after I respond. Um, I would say that unfortunately, a lot of Maoists in the Imperial Core presently are very dogmatic, and so the uh, a lot of the work that's being produced is completely stripped of the context and the situation um, of our our given places. And so I think this is a really, really refreshing book where you're going to read this. You're going to learn about Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, but it's not going to, you know, it, it's not like a Mao study group. Um, I, I think there's a place, obviously, for Mao study groups, but but this is a book that I think is very accessible and it's written in the language of, I, I think, anyone across the world really, you know, could could read this and, and find this somewhat accessible. It's not like a, a founding document of the Communist Party of the Philippines. So I just found this to be uh, very inviting and open. And I think this is the kind of content that revolutionary communists should be producing. Basically, laying out the principles, the goals, the values of our struggles for national liberation, for proletarian democracy, and to, um, you know, to crush imperialism and colonialism and patriarchy and to transition to a, you know, stateless class society, all this stuff, but to do it in a way that engages the the language and the values and the, uh, the needs of the people. I think that's really cool about this book. So, yeah, I guess to turn it back towards you. So, yeah, these, these people are Maoists. Um, so how how did that read go for you all? Did it was it interesting? Was it kind of alienating for you all? Um, what was your experience of the book? No, I don't think alienating. I mean, Dean and I, we've been kind of like um, wading into kind of learning about the CNL and the NDF and, and the struggle in the Philippines. So I think it was kind of what I was expecting. I mean, um, I don't know, maybe we have ideological differences or whatever, but I think that it's a really interesting work and I'm not like opposed to it, obviously, <laughs> like obviously in, in solidarity with the NDF, with the CNL, I think those are cool things and like, great. Um, I don't know, the, the thing that always stuck, that stuck out to me in the book, as particularly Maoist, was like a handful of like phrases and types of uh, <laughs> um, like acronyms that I wasn't familiar with. Like uh, the PDO is a, is a phrase that comes up, poor and dispossessed uh, people. And uh, there's another one that was like AOM um, about, uh, shoot, which one does that one mean? Um, Arouse, organize, um, mobilize, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, just a, just a handful of like, uh, like uh, sort of Marxist-Lendus Maoist shorthands that I wasn't, I wasn't quite prepared for. But, um, but they, uh, they explain them in really interesting ways, especially the AOM, which I'll, I'll get to in my piece maybe in a bit. But yeah, Dean, what do you think? Yeah, I, I felt the same way. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's always interesting to try to enter into the struggle in a different context. You know, you were just saying, Chase, it's it's uh, important to contextualize things, to understand the context of things. And as Matt mentioned, we've been trying to learn a little bit more about the CNL for you know several years, I guess, in the podcast, just kind of here and there. And that has been really interesting. But to have this kind of window into the way that it's narrating its own history, narrating its own theology, its own philosophy is, I think, really unique. And so in that respect, you know, it, it was really uh, exciting to read and, and thrilling to kind of be welcomed into that perspective and, and kind of see what are the gifts that are made made possible by participating in something like the NDS. Um, I do think, you know, whatever, like <laughs> if you're, if you're not a Maoist, you, you are probably going to have some significant problems. I have significant problems, I guess I could be forthright about it <laughs> in, in the way that they narrate the history of socialism. Uh, you know, whatever, I'm a, a, a dirty revisionist, I guess, and that's fine. Um, but, uh, 
you know, that's sort of secondary, I think, to the real meat of, of the, the text, which is not the inside baseball of sectarian right. fights on the left, but like the, the excitement of these are Christian people really trying to look around at the, the movement that is making a difference in their community. And they're trying to then engage with that movement, think with it, think through it. And that's incredible to see. Um, there were even some parts that I found uh, a bit surprising, like uh, you mentioned, Chase, they are constantly making the case that communists and Christians have a lot of overlap. Um, but they also make the case that like they don't necessarily have to overlap exactly like th mm -hmm. there can be some kind of important differences between them. And I guess I, I don't know why, but I was just sort of surprised to see them emphasize that and, and encourage too that there's this kind of recognition of distance and yet at the same time such a strong argument for participating nevertheless and really trying to parse that out. So yeah, uh, some some differences here and there, but ultimately it's it's exciting just to sort of see this Christian way of engaging um, you know what what people are actually doing on the ground to resist a, a fascist state in the Philippines. Yeah, and that's a very materialist approach to organizing, I think, too, right? To say, no, there are significant differences, perhaps ideologically or, you know, objectively uh, within a society. And yet we have a common and collective interest, right? We have a common and collective, at least in word, stated goal. And so therefore, what do we mean by this goal? How can we actually achieve this goal? Uh, let's unite. Yeah, and that's also maybe a, a really neat um, approach. Uh, Matt and I were also just sort of thinking through this book together earlier in the week and uh, just before we got on the call and talking about its similarities and differences to other experiments in Christian Marxist dialogue. And maybe we can talk more about them later, but just by way of a quick example, you know, so this book is a, is a dialogue. It's a commentary, they say, on the compendium of the social doctrine of the church. But it's a commentary that is kind of both with and against the compendium. Like sometimes it's trying to see where it opens things up and then it's also intentionally combative. And that approach is actually quite different in some ways than what you got in like liberation theology in Latin America, where um, people are really bending over backwards to kind of make themselves. Um, I don't know. It's like it's not a cynical exercise of saying we're trust us, we're on your side, the Vatican. But it's a, a real kind of genuine attempt to say, you know, we're not causing a division here. We're not creating sort of explicit uh, arguments against the Vatican. You know, there are a handful of liberation theologians who do. But on the whole, it's a, a more of a conciliatory kind of left wing movement. But uh, here the CNL is like finding its own kind of voice and, and a bit of a spine, I guess, and saying, we're just going to say we think you're absolutely wrong. <laughs> and here's why and how. And that was also a really fascinating thing to just to read throughout the, the text. Sweet, yeah. So uh, do we want to go ahead and, and dive into our three chapters that we kind of picked out? Let's do it. I think that puts me first. Uh, I read the second chapter here, which is titled On Poverty and Equality and What Can Be Done, or the second part, I guess. And I, as I just was saying, it's a really interesting dialogue with the, the compendium. Um, it's trying to sort through what does the compendium of the social doctrine of the church think about these issues, poverty and equality, and how does it propose to, to deal with them? So it does, I think, a really good job of laying out in good faith what the church has to say about it. And it also does a good job trying to, again, kind of mark the distance um, between what the church thinks and maybe what the CNL thinks strategically. And maybe the thing that stuck out to me the most is 
even though it does have sometimes this combative spirit, it's never mean-spirited for the most part. It's kind of like the church says it wants to overcome, you know, the hatred between the classes or something like that. It wants to overcome inequality. It wants a world without poverty and so on. And the CML says, great, <laughs> we want that too. Uh, but the church is sort of unable to deliver on that promise because it mistakes the fundamental issues at play, the fundamental material conditions that create poverty and inequality. And they go into great detail trying to explain exactly why that is with constant reference to the specific situation in the Philippines. And the book is extremely timely. I mean, they, uh, they're not trying to write you know, a book that you could read in 50 years and have it be as, as relevant then. Like, they're talking about COVID, right? They're talking about the elections this year in 2022. Um, they're really drawing people into the present reality of the Philippines. And they're testing, in some ways, the compendium of the social doctrine of the church uh, in, in its ability to address that reality on the ground. So some things I really appreciated maybe uh, specifically, is they often will go out of their way to point out like where the church says something very interesting or where even a church official has said something very interesting. So for example, you know, they'll talk about, uh, I don't know, the, the strategies that are proposed in the compendium, which are usually drawn from papal encyclicals. So for example, just to give some uh, summary of the, the causes of poverty they mentioned, so they summarize it as sort of four things. First of all, there's a, a cooperation and understanding and collaboration among uh, individual political communities would allow countries to uh, to work together. So that would be one way of kind of overcoming that, that structural issue of poverty. Uh, the second is the elimination of economic, financial, and social mechanisms and structures of sin. Uh, the third is building other forms of cooperation that have to do with access to the international market. And then the fourth is the implementation of the right to development based on a handful of principles. So they explain a little bit about what that is. So they're trying to lay out, here's what the church thinks is the strategy. But they present what they think is kind of their only, their, their perspective, uh, where they say Christian realism would consider that all the above recommendations and the church's principles for the resolution of global poverty and underdevelopment uh, of the third world countries cannot be implemented and never achieved under the auspices of monopoly capitalism and the dominance of imperialism, particularly U.S. imperialism in the global capitalist economy and politics. And they go on to say that it's only if there's a, a commitment to socialism across the world that these kinds of things can really be solved. So I think, uh, you know, maybe to summarize sort of the, the gist of the, the part that they're dealing with, um, they're trying to sort of think with the church as far as they can, to think with the compendium as far as they can, and then also to point out what they see as the contradictions in the compendium. And, you know, they they put a proposal forward and they leave it to the reader to decide whether or not that's convincing. But uh, I do think what, what impressed me most is on poverty and inequality, they're taking the time to uh, to allow the church to have its voice. And then they're, you know, creating a, a bit of a space for a dialogue. I think that's a really good way of putting it, though, that it does kind of create that space for dialogue. Um, it is a really, I think, intellectually honest way to do it as well. But they are just kind of like very straightforwardly kind of putting out the the tensions and, um, you know, thinking with the church as far as they can and then recognizing when they you know can't go any further. I think it's pretty neat. Um, that section was particularly cool. Um, it's been a, actually a hot second since I read it since I got the book, but uh, I remember kind of liking it. It was cool. 
Yeah, and this section also seemed to highlight the necessity of just mass participation and mass struggle, which I think is not always the go-to kind of means of addressing uh, the issues uh, that are at hand, especially global poverty. Uh, when, for for example, some people kind of jump to NGO kind of creating of some kind of technology or or charity or something, but I think the analysis of the problem, but also the unique understanding of what has to be done, um, who can actually address the issues, is is really important. They're talking about fighting fascism. They're talking about fighting imperialism. If you want to address global poverty, you have to crush fascism and imperialism. Um, and the only people that can do it is not a few revolutionaries for uh, the CNL, according to the CNL, right? The only people that can actually end global poverty are the masses themselves. And that is something that really kind of stuck out to me in this section. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, there's a, I, I think that particular philosophy about the masses too, I think comes through in the NDF's organization. I mean, I'm not an expert on the NDF or Philippine Filipino politics, so I hope I'm not like misspeaking, but um, the NDF, like you said at the top of the show, Chase, is like this big um, organization of all of these other organizations, right? It's a front that's representing all of these different um, these different sort of like segments of the struggle. And I mean, it, it's, a, it's a mass movement in that way, right? It's like, it's engaging all of these different people, whether or not they are like completely in line with sort of like the ideology of, um, you know, uh, of the NDF or, or not, it's it's all there, sort of like engaging all all the segments at once, and I think that uh, I mean that kind of rings tr- rings true for the way that the CNL talks about um, the masses as well in, in terms of poverty. Yeah, and one thing that I find really fascinating in that is in that too is uh, it's trying to sort of I guess uh, make the church deliver on its promise of investing in participation and citizenship, like. It will say the church really wants this, and it's true. In the compendium, if you read it, it all all over the place, it says that its vision for the the world is a, a participatory one, a democratic vision. Um, that's right there in what the Vatican is saying. But what the CNL is saying is, well, you know, what would that really mean? What would it really mean to create a participatory movement? Uh, in the Philippines, it means for them the the NDF, right? <laughs> that's the the participatory structure that they've kind of bound themselves to. And uh, I think what's really fascinating, too, about the NDF is there is that kind of room for um, creative tensions. You know, one thing Matt and I had read a while back uh, when we were talking about the CNL and the Magnificast was this uh, narration from Jose Maria Sison, a founder of the Communist Party of the Philippines, where he kind of talks about, like, the process of learning in the Communist Party with the, the, with, uh, the Christians in that country because... He says, you know, there sure there was like some initial dogmatic atheism and it got in the way of organizing. And over time, uh, both the, the communists and Christians sort of matured and, and understood that they could work together without kind of, you know, having the same metaphysics or agreeing on every single point here and there. And I think that's a real strength of uh, these kinds of mass participatory movements is a recognition that as long as you have kind of the as long as you know who your enemy is, right, <laughs> imperialism and fascism. Uh, you can kind of, you know, leave the rest uh, for another day. You you can like talk about that over beer, but that's a different kind of uh, conversation than, you know, how to get rid of like a person who is literally, you know, killing people in the streets uh, to try to maintain a, a terror regime. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And it to me, it doesn't seem like a vague like movementism, right? It's not like a like a general left against a general right. But both Christians and communists, you know, they have political commitments. And so the question is, you know, where do our political commitments align? You know, where where do we cross paths and where can we unite? Uh, ra- rather than saying, listen, you know, we're all just like in it together and we have no differences. We have no, uh, there is no distinction. There is no contradiction between us. Nor is it saying, oh, you know what, there's a contradiction and therefore it's an antagonistic, you know, all contradictions are antagonistic and therefore we can't work together. But I, I think that like that analysis of whether a, a contradiction or distinction or tension, you know, is antagonistic or non-antagonistic and properly handling that and, and uniting and organizing people who may be coming with, you know, different ideologies and, and, and even different like ideas about how to get where uh, that is. It's pretty it's, it's really important. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point to bring that up. They're um, a real like lifting from the bottom kind of vibe to the whole thing and being participatory. Uh, but also, like you said, it's kind of um, it, it is sort of a, a respecter of differences in a way that, uh, I don't know, the left in the United States, for example, <laughs> does not know how to be. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to those issues, though, of poverty and inequality, maybe the, the core part of this section that will stick with me is um, just that attention to materialism. I mean, just to keep it basic, right? That like uh, the church says inequality and poverty are kind of the result of of bad attitudes or like people not getting along. And if everybody could learn to cooperate, if we just sort of told everybody to be nicer on an international level, then all the countries that are underdeveloped, they would be able to have access to development through you know market participation that's authentic and so on and so forth. And I think it's important to sort of challenge that idea from reality, trying to say, is that really how things work? Is that really the cause of inequality and poverty? Um, you know, is it realistic to say if we just sort of converted everybody's hearts and minds, it would all pan out? And uh, what the CNL is doing is not just saying, well, that's pie in the sky stuff. They're trying to lay out what are the real causes of inequality and poverty. And for them, they, you know, they go into really great detail about like the specific reason that the Philippines as a country uh, is impoverished. Like they talk about the history of imperialism. Uh, They'll give you all kinds of stats about (laughs) how money gets sucked out of that country and so on. Uh, And so they're trying to say, look, there are other things at play here, right? And you have to sort of attack that question. So maybe that's the sort of the summation of the the section is uh, they're trying to sort of put a a materialist explanation uh, as a, a counter or, or an alternative to what you could say is is a more idealist sort of perspective on the part of the church when it comes to structural poverty and inequality. I mean, the church knows that these are structural things. It's something I love about Catholicism. It does recognize that the, it, there are structural material roots to these kinds of sins, uh, structural sins, but uh, you know, it, it just can't, it doesn't quite sort of get there <laughs> in a detailed way. Uh, in the way that the CNL wants them to. And I think it's interesting how they kind of parse it out. Dean, that'll... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, that'll actually come up later on, too. There's a section in, in my chapter where they... Uh, and one of the parts of the compendium says, like, structures and systems. But one of the things that the CNL will push is, like, 
well, what like what structure, what system? You have to name imperialism, mm-hmm. and and who is the imperial power of the world? The United States, and so it's it really is. It's just saying that there, um, or I like on some of the parts where it says the compendium is really encouraging this this really like great idea. It just doesn't. It just needs to be pushed to be a little more specific, more concrete, more material. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this is all a great segue into my section for sure. <laughs> so um, I covered the fifth chapter. It's called On the Contradiction Between Capital and Labor and How It Could Be Resolved. A great chapter title, uh, something I'm actually extremely interested in as a person. Um, I am a labor activist and I think that unions are good and that the contradiction between capital and labor should be resolved on the side of labor. Um, <laughs> just going to say my biases up front here. Uh, this chapter is really fascinating, I think. It's really interesting. I think it, it's picking up a lot of what Dean is uh, saying, but in sort of a different register on a different topic or along the lines of like recognizing that what the uh, the compendium of uh, social teaching is kind of giving is like good um, in its aspirations, but it falls short in terms of like, you know, how would you actually get to those things or something? Um, so largely, I think if you're familiar at all with the Christian Marxist dialogue and if you're listening to our podcasts or the podcast in our cinematic universe, you, you probably know a little bit about it. Um, the things I'm going to say probably aren't much of a surprise here, but the, the big idea of the chapter is to explain the ways that Catholic social teaching deals with the contradiction between capital and labor and how the CNL provides corrections to the way that Catholic social teaching goes about resolving that contradiction uh, sort of um, poorly, I guess. So let's see. Um, there's this phrase I keep saying, and maybe I should go ahead and define my terms. Uh, what's the contradiction between capital and labor anyways? Everyone's always asking. They're, they're coming up to me on the street. They're asking these questions. Um, basically, this means that it, it's the recognition that class war exists in, in one way or the other, right? Capital is always trying to wring every last bit of productive value from workers, uh, whereas workers are always trying to unify to get one over on capital, right? That's the tension. Um, so there are these two sides of the uh, of, of the equation here. Um, it's really important to note too, though, that uh, those two sides are not equal in their social power or political power. Um, you know, if you have a big labor movement, um, you might have more power on the worker side than not. But I mean, capital, um, the capitalist class, or however that works out. I mean, the the breakdown in, in the Philippines is really particular, right? Like the comprador class, um, the the national bourgeoisie, it's all kind of there. And um, maybe Chase can enlighten us on some of the the mouse stuff about that later. But um, the point is that like capitalists are usually in almost every kind of struggle, like you know, more organized than the workers because the whole uh, system of capitalism is designed to keep workers disorganized, right? That's the whole idea. If if workers can organize, then uh, then the contradiction uh, becomes resolved <laughs> on the side of the workers. So this, uh, this this is like a fundamental tension within class analysis for Marxists, right? This this contradiction between capital and workers. And um, recognizing that, because uh, the Catholic Church, like Dean said, um, does recognize those systemic problems, um, various popes and other sort of church officials have offered approaches to deal with that conflict that's inherent within the capitalist system. So broadly speaking, like, I mean, different papal encyclicals, um, explain that um, rather than resolving the tension through socialism, which actually they you know warn against, don't do that. This is the Catholic Church. Uh, the Church should advocate for a type of harmony between classes that's based in solidarity and charity. And on its face, like those are, 
ideas that sound kind of nice. Uh, I like solidarity. I like charity. Great Christian virtues. Ten out of ten. But the way that uh, those actually work out on the ground are quite complicated. Um, and when you know, in practice, do they really resolve the contradiction of capital? And the answer is like, no, they don't. Um, or if they do, it resolves them on the side of capitalists, not on the workers, right? So it, it, um, it resolves the tension uh, between capital and labor in, you know, in a way that's great for capitalists, but <laughs> poor for workers. So the CNL argues that there's room within the Christian tradition to resolve, resolve in terms of socialism. Uh, we're um, Christians in the Catholic Church or just in general willing to kind of go that direction. So from here, I guess I'm just going to lay out a few like quotes, maybe to to walk through the beats of the arguments. I mean, the chapter is quite long. I'm probably not going to get to every nuance, but I'm going to give you some some great overviews on uh, on what's going on here. So if you're going to talk about labor and um, and capital from the vantage point of Catholic social teaching, there's one papal encyclical you got to know about, and it's called Rerum Novarum. Um, or on new things. It was written in 1891. And uh, let's see, Catholic social teaching, crazy about this one. They love it. <laughs> so uh, the CNL notes this about Rerum Navarum. Uh, Rerum Navarum excludes socialism as a remedy to social ills and expounds with precision and... Con Ooh, sorry. Ram Navarum excludes socialism as a remedy to social ills and expounds with precision and in contemporary terms the Catholic doctrine on work, the right to property, the principle of collaboration instead of class struggle as the fundamental means for social change, the rights of the weak, the dignity of the poor, and the obligations of the rich, the perfecting of justice through charity, and the right to form professional associations. Um, so Ram Navarum is an interesting text um, insofar as it does say something really fascinating about um, the contradiction between labor and capital. It has a lot of nice ideas, uh, but the problem is that um, the serious social problems that it identifies um, can't just magically be solved by cooperation between all forces, right? I guess that's kind of like the uh, the thesis that this whole this whole chapter hinges on here from from the perspective of the CNL. Um, I mean, the tension is really clear, right? The only way to really resolve the contradiction of capital and labor is systemically, that's it. Uh, but Catholic social teaching affirms that it can be addressed through some like moral teachings and, uh, you know, quote, appropriate solutions. Um, and that's a complicated thing to suggest because it just, it, it, you can't, you can't magic your way through class struggle. Um, the appropriate solutions that are offered in the encyclical are, you know, basically inadequate uh, to resolve the, the conflict here that the, of class struggle, right? Uh, the CNL writes in this chapter that uh, due to the nature of capitalism, um, this conflict is, you know, insurmountable because uh, it's, I'm sorry, hang on, I insert this part. The CNL writes that um, the appropriate solutions that the encyclical offers are inadequate to resolve the conflict between capital and labor due to the nature of capitalism, which is exploitative and oppressive, wherein the capitalists get super profits from the labor power of the toiling masses and the industrial manufacturing, commercial and financial firms, which are solely owned privately by the few capitalists who compete with one another for more profits in the free market uh, economy. And, and that's, I think that's such a, I mean, that's good. That's what's at the bottom of it, right? So um, it's cool to think that workers should have dignity. It's, it's great that, um, that, uh, 
Bernard like cites the idea of you know rights for the weak, um, and 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 that there's an obligation of the rich to do justice, to be charitable, to treat workers right. Those are all great ideas. But at the end of the day, like if you um, if you can't find a way to make capitalists do those things, um, they're not going to, <laughs> because capitalism is a a type of system that forms you to be a person who doesn't want to do those things, right? You desire growth. Uh, what it means to succeed is to exploit people. And uh, since the Catholic Church can't make people stop, <laughs> if they could, um, I guess it'd be great, but they can't. Um, then the CNL finds the whole thing kind of suspect. And I don't know, I think that they're, they're right for thinking that. Um, so from that perspective, the CNL says that the church needs to figure this out, right? Uh, their solution is uh, different than theirs, obviously, um, but they write this. Uh, the CNL, therefore, is calling the church to liberate themselves from the anti-people ideology of imperialism and get rid of their bias from monopoly capitalism. In human history, religion has been and is still being used by exploiters and oppressors as a spiritual cloak to maintain and strengthen, to maintain and strengthen the exploitative and oppressive system of slavery, feudalism, and capitalism. So, um, I think that there, there's a way that the CNL can kind of like speak into the situation and uh, in, in ways that um, maybe other socialists, uh, I mean, couldn't, right? Since they're religious people themselves, since they're church people themselves, they can kind of recognize the, the spaces where uh, the church might be, um, you, you know, be used as sort of a bludgeon by the capitalist class to uh, hammer out these uh, these tensions, these struggles. So the CNL suggests that uh, the church instead, um, instead of kind of like opting for class harmony, that they should practice the essential virtue of solidarity in order to combat in a spirit of justice and charity, those structures of sin, which generate and perpetuate poverty, underdevelopment and degradation. Um, so, you know, if, if the Catholic church is really um, invested in, in the ideas of solidarity and the ideas of justice and charity, then it has to, you know, kind of go to the roots of the problem and, and rip those roots up, rather than um, hoping that the uh, the vines grow together in a in a more pleasing way or something. Um, dang, there's so much more I can say, uh, but maybe I'll stop there. What, what do you all think about this stuff so far? Yeah, this is this is a cool chapter. It's kind of like my my three years of faith and capital, <laughs> you know, just like, <laughs> but just like written like so much uh, better. <laughs> I, I think the fundamental thing here is it's really pushing at how religion, you know, every religious person, institution, organization, community, uh, no one's apolitical. You know, everyone is. Uh, has a political ideology, a political philosophy, a lens for analyzing what the problem is, and then also what the solution is. And so the compendium is, first of all, it's naming certain problems with particular language, right? Rich and poor, poverty and uh, and abundance. And it's also deeply influenced by, you know, whether it acknowledges it or not, by Marxism, uh, Marxism has had, you know, had incredible influence at the end of the 19th century through uh, through the early 20th as well on the analysis of what capitalism is and what it isn't. But it sounds like the, you know, the compendium is suggesting these analyses of what the problems are and then also these solutions. You know, perhaps we can just persuade the uh, the capitalists to be nicer to the workers, or um, you know, we should convert the souls of workers to i don't know join together and and be in solidarity together or something like that but 
Marxism is coming from a materialist analysis, and it's suggesting a different analysis, uh, a different understanding as to what the problems are, why those problems exist, and then what has to happen to uh, address those problems. And to be fair, I mean, so first of all, JC, I think you know you're on you're on the right track. Uh, to be fair, though, I guess I, I should say too that the the Catholic Church is not, I guess, completely naive in the way these things work out. Like. Um, I don't know. It's it's not unusual in some of these like uh, more social encyclicals to find, um, you know, talks talk about like unions and you know the right for workers to organize and that kind of thing too. So it's not like the Catholic Church is completely naive about about class conflict, but it's it's also not looking to, um, you know, overcome that contradiction through socialism. So there, there's sort of a way that uh, they aren't they aren't completely, I guess, idealistic in in the sense that uh, they do recognize that like working people should organize or something. So there's something there's like an opening, I think, in this way of thinking about labor. But uh, yeah, maybe it just doesn't go far enough. Yeah, I think too that is important to recognize. the The Catholic social teaching tradition is complicated. Yeah. Um, and uh, as I said, it's like a hodgepodge of stuff like, you know, the popes themselves don't always agree on things. And so it's a tradition cobbled together from <laughs> a handful of popes with different priorities, different styles or emphases. But it is important to note that by the time you do get to the compendium, uh, there's a very, very clear kind of language that uh, uh, labor always has priority over capital, for example. Um, that's like an official piece of Catholic social teaching. Uh, that is important. Um, and there's an assumption that, you know, capital nevertheless has a lot of power over labor. And so there's there's a recognition of contradictions within capitalism. But uh, as you said, Matt, because the solution isn't socialism, there's this kind of fundamental uh, sidestepping of the question of production. And, you know, one thing I've always admired about liberation theology is it, it tries to say, you know, the church is kind of gesturing toward this kind of idea. And why don't we just push it over, right? <laughs> Why don't we just say it's socialism? That's what we're talking about, right? And you see a similar thing too here in this text with the CNL. Um, it's the church is gesturing toward these things. It understands that, you know, the relationship between capital and labor is a, a complicated one. It, it knows that alienated work is real. Like, you know, I mentioned earlier, what I love about the Catholic tradition is uh, it, it does have this kind of way of, of recognizing these things. And by the time you get to someone like Pope Francis, who gets a lot of positive praise in this book in particular, um, you know, in Francis's most recent encyclical Fratelli Tutti, he outright names neoliberalism as a specific thing that he opposes, and thinks we should all oppose, and so on, right? So, like, there's something to that in the church, but nevertheless, what you don't get in Fratelli Tutti is an argument that says, and therefore we need yeah. socialism, right? <laughs> so it's uh, the CNL is trying to say you're almost there, um, but uh, you know we have to sort of uh, embed that in a, a bigger sort of view of, of the economic issues. And, and I think that's a, an instructive opening for dialogue, if nothing else, right? <laughs> Even for the the uh, unconvinced Christian, uh, it's an important thing to think about because it is pointing to some uh, some real tensions in that hodgepodge of Catholic social teaching. Yeah, and to, to be fair too, I think that like, um, okay, let me say this. The chapter is very long. <laughs> the chapter is very long. It cites a lot of different encyclicals and it gets into the weeds of some of them. So I think that like, I, I guess I, I feel like I am like almost like presenting a too, like an overly simplistic view of, um, or like a, a frictionless view of 
uh, the way that Catholic social teaching envisions the contradiction between labor and capital. And I think that I, I don't mean to do that, but inevitably, I guess that's what happens when you only have a few minutes to talk about something. But like you said, Dean, it's a hodgepodge of different things. There's a lot of uh, sort of different roiling um, movements within Catholicism, uh, let alone Catholic social teaching that deals with some of those those problems. Um, but yeah, I mean, by and large, though, the church is not uh, saying, let's just have, let's just be socialist. It's not doing that. So that that lies the tension with CNL, obviously. Um, well, uh, there's a lot of other things I would love to talk about with this chapter that I think are really fascinating, and maybe we'll get to them later, or maybe we won't at all. And you'll just have to you'll always just have to wonder what I was thinking. But uh, <laughs> overall, I think that the CNL makes a really a pretty compelling case that Catholic social teaching lacks uh, a type of analytical framework that you know does push things over the edge, <laughs> that that does actually address things at the root rather than. Um, kind of playing out the, uh, you know, the sort of class harmony approach. Um, it, to, in the in the end of the chapter, like, uh, the vibe that you get is that the CNL is, is arguing that within Catholic social teaching, there's like an opening for more radical types of analysis and social action. There's like, you know, there's the impulses there. There are positive aspirations, but they need, and it opens you up to to maybe thinking about those larger structural questions that uh, social socialist analysis that gets you. Um, but to end the chapter out, the CNL says that um, Christians need to figure out, like really explicitly, which side they're on, and they cite the labor song and everything, and it's great. Uh, love a, love a good labor song. Um, which side are you on is a good question for Christians. Um, when it comes to these types of contradictions. And I mean, this is not just a, a question of Catholic social teaching. This is a question for every church on the planet. Which side are you on for sure, right? Um, and on that note, it does offer some like revolutionary jumping off points for Christians who want to orient themselves in that struggle. And it just kind of like notes a few different things for Christians to consider, I think, as they are um, grappling with the question of, of labor and capital. Um, so it, it just gives a few, uh, but they're kind of interesting. So the um, the chapter does actually go to some length to talk about liberation theology uh, in its uh, Latin American iterations um, and, and what that might mean for Christians as sort of like an operative framework for thinking about uh, labor and staying with the struggle rather than, you know, sidestepping it or something. Um, but then there's these two other, um, I think, pretty novel ways of thinking about Christianity in the world that I really am kind of excited about. Um, so one of them is is a, a, Christ, a Christianity that is um, focused around social action, but also what they call Eucharistic reenactment. And I like that phrase. Uh, it's not one I've actually heard before, so kind of cool. But basically, it's like, you know, how do you um, how do you reframe your whole idea of worship and uh, even in the idea of like, you know, Eucharist, how do you reframe that uh, to, to practice the things that Jesus practices and to kind of like get into the struggle with the people. Right. And um, anyways, I like that idea of extending worship out into the world um, in, in a really material way. Right. Eucharistic reenactment. Uh, get excited about it. The other one that they talk about is um, is you know more social action, and and to explain this part though they actually go to the gospels and um, they frame Jesus with it. Uh, they don't frame Jesus. That's the wrong word. <laughs> that's somebody else that does that. Um, but they 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 say that Jesus um, in his ministry is doing something that's just like political organizing. Um, uh, going back to one of the uh, acronyms I mentioned earlier to Chase. 
Jesus is somebody in his gospel who's doing the work of arousing, of organizing, and mobilizing. I think that's a really interesting connection to make, right? So if uh, if the idea is to pick up, you know, Eucharistic reenactment to get people into the struggle, and then to recognize that like what it was that Jesus was doing was was uh, you know getting people woke or whatever, <laughs> it's kind of a cool turn. Well, excellent. Yeah, uh, you know, we're running pretty far on time here, so I will hit my chapter quickly, and we will we can wrap it up after that. But my chapter was on terrorism, war, violence, and worldwide peace, and there were just a few points that I wanted to uh, point out. The first point was that the CNL says that the papacy condemns terrorism, but the CNL believes we should reasonably read this as addressed to the imperialist powers, specifically the United States and their fascist puppet states who promote terrorism and enact anti-terrorism laws. So a part of this section is all about, you know, uh, the world is very concerned about terrorism these days, right? We had a whole war on terrorism that is just endless. But the CNL is saying, no, who are the real terrorists? Well, terrorism is structurally is, is something that's actually structural. Uh, it's not just about these individuals or these um, small, tiny little groups. It's actually... Uh, wielded by imperialists. And so the number one terrorist uh, in the world, the CNL says, is the United States of America. And it has been so ever since it seized global imperialist power following World War II. So that's a, a really big basic point. Um, and uh, just to, to read a little, a little bit here, um, to quote, what then is the correct answer to the question on the causes of terrorism, which the compendium and the papal encyclicals intend to remove in order to promote friendship among the peoples? The main causes of terrorism are the imperialists in their puppet states that are, in fact, the worst terrorists in the world today. Thus, to remove the causes of terrorists is for the Christian churches in all exploited and oppressed peoples to struggle against the imperialists, primarily the U.S. imperialists and their puppet states. Through the use of state power, the terrorism of the imperialists and their anti-terrorism laws preserve and aggravate the monopoly capitalists' system of exploitation, oppression, and plunder in the world, especially in the third world countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, end quote. I was on page 3, 12 through 13. And so uh, part of that section also was, as it had named, the anti-terrorism laws. These uh, anti-terrorism laws that are being passed in the Philippines, but in countries all across the world, are really being funded and backed by the United States, the number one terrorist of the world. And what it does is it targets basically anyone who is struggling for democracy, especially struggling for socialism, or uh, nations that are struggling for national independence. And so uh, terrorism is now this catchphrase, this word that's used to kind of rally up in uh, the, the mass support within imperial cores to or even like within semi-colonial nations, like to turn ag against themselves, basically. Um, if you call someone a terrorist, you've legitimized the actual terrorism from the either fascist puppet state or the imperial power. Um, another point was that the CNN wanted to talk about how imperialist wars are unjust wars. 
uh, and and that these imperialist wars are wielded basically to solve these crises the that we're about that we're having right now across the world right now there's a there's a crisis of imperialism um, of a monopoly capitalism and so imperialist powers wage wars to divide and redivide the world um, and then to again divide and redivide the world and to basically endlessly combat each other while also trying to combat socialist societies that attempt to end imperialism. And uh, there's a long section on basically the U.S. using, first of all, like producing the first producer and then the only user of weapons of mass destruction. And then how it's used to uh, used the whole hysteria around other, you know, smaller countries who uh, supposedly have these weapons of mass destruction to invade and the primary thing has been like oil. Uh, the, uh, the U.S. has a monopoly of oil across the world. And so Iran, Venezuela, Colombia, Indonesia, the Philippines, Angola, Nigeria, Congo, Gabon, uh, Cameroon, the Equatorial Guinea, Saudi Arabia, and the Emirates. You know, it's just like endless story of the U.S. invading and using their imperial power to seize their oil or undermine their struggles for national liberation, depending on the situation there. And uh, there was an interesting section here on page 348, I thought, let me see here, that reads this. By now, Christian churches all over the world ought to have realized that the imperialist wars of aggression and military interventions are morally unjust and reactionary. These exacerbate the monopoly capitalist oppression and exploitation against the weaker countries in the third world and against the billions of the toiling masses of workers and peasants in both the developed and underdeveloped nations of the world. Consequently, Christians and their church's leaders have to accede that pacifism only promotes imperialism in war, and to deny or obfuscate the aggressive nature of imperialism and the corresponding need for revolution against monopoly capitalism is to condone imperialist wars of aggression and the terrorist acts of puppet states. CNL asserts, therefore, that the aggressive acts of imperialism in the exploitative and oppressive system of monopoly capitalism should precisely serve as the basic reasons for all Christians and the church's leaders throughout the world to put forward the global call. No more war, no more imperialism. Reject war and end imperialism. This means that war can only be eliminated when imperialism, the source and root cause of war and terrorism, is finally ended. End quote. Uh, so that's them pretty you know, going pretty hard on um, if you want to solve this issue, you're going to have to end imperialism. Two more points real quick uh, is basically they engage these five, what they call five strict conditions. And Dean, uh, Dean and Matt, you, you all may know of this. I, I was unfamiliar, but five strict conditions set by the church to legitimize and justify uh, basically armed struggle or resistance. Is that something that you all are familiar with? Uh, I don't know if it put exactly uh in that way um i mean maybe it is but uh i i get the impression they're sort of just summarizing maybe uh some of the the conversations that often happen around just war theory and so on there are a number of conditions but they kind of get it depends on who you ask <laughs> they get uh summarized in different ways throughout the history of the church and then you kind of have to decide 
which part to sort of freeze. But yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm not sure um, if if the church puts it in that language these days or not. I would just have to confess some some ignorance there. Okay, well, apparently there are, you know, we'll just assume that at least for the CNL, they, they're reading five strict conditions set by the church uh, that rationalize and legitimize counter-armed struggle, uh, self-defense uh, of the people against violence. And the really interesting part of this section right here differentiates unjust violence and just violence. And I think this is a really important conversation. I mean, just for anyone, the masses of of us living in the world today, but specifically for Christians, it's a hard conversation. Christianity has taught us that all violence is the same. Violence is violence. There's no differentiation. But the CNL goes really hard on this section saying, no, there's a difference. There's a clear difference between unjust violence of imperialism or the fascist states and then the just armed struggle, the just armed self-defense of the masses. So, I mean, the point here is just to say that there's a difference. One's unjust and reactionary. The other is just and revolutionary. And that the just and revolutionary armed struggle of the masses of the Filipinos fits perfectly into the five strict conditions, which I'm not going to go into just for time's sake. And then finally, just want to wrap it up. Um, the One of the final points of the section was on how both Christians and communists are committed to the establishment of world peace. And that is a a, a basic point of unity that Christian communities and communists should be able to unite around, the actual struggle for the establishment of world peace. Man, there's so much going on there. Yeah. uh, it's super, <laughs> super fascinating. You know, when you were talking about the, you know, like the systems of, uh, like the ways that imperialism and, and terrorism kind of go together, um, especially from the perspective of like the United States, it, it makes me, it makes me think of this phrase I hear like in, in reporting quite often, like um, that the United States per, like the United States participates in an in international, like rules-based society or something like that like uh that that uh, what the united states does is fundamentally rules rules based and other countries that um you know the united states sanctions or whatever they try to sort of transgress those rules and i always am struck about how like of an insidious way that is to kind of frame things as like a, a rules-based global order because um you know like like uh, Venezuela or like Cuba or whatever, the United States imposes extremely brutal sanctions that like decimates the entire country. And like, so, so when they talk about rules based order, I mean, what they're talking about are, you know, regimes of imperialism that are uh, structured to, to punish a country's people rather than, I don't know, like politically or something, but it's just, uh, it, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm not, I'm, I think that the, uh, the framing the United States as like a huge terrorist superpower or something is like a really provocative way to put it. And um, I mean, I think there's something to be said about that, but I guess it's just like, to me, it seems even like worse than terrorism or something, right? It's a, it's a global rules-based order that, uh, that fundamentally like disadvantages some countries simply because the United States makes the rules or something. Right. So, so it ends up looking like terrorism on the ground. And, and uh, uh, I don't know, it's just such a, such an egregious, um, an egregious way that violence is done to other people for, you know, for very dumb reasons. 
Yeah, I mean, the the rhetoric around um, the terrorism charge against the U.S. is interesting. I, I agree with you, Matt. I mean, it's a it's interesting because um, <laughs> you can the, the U.S. narrates itself in these weird ways uh, that kind of obscures how the you know it stacks the deck and then it enforces the way that 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 deck is stacked uh, to make sure that it doesn't uh, get shuffled or whatever. I don't know. The metaphor is falling apart here, but. Uh, I think uh, it's interesting, too, because you see similar rhetoric in Latin America, where, for example, like the United States will designate um, Cuba as like a, a country that is a, a funder of, of terrorism or a supporter of terrorism. And the they're, Cuban, they're part of the axis of evil, even. Yeah, exactly. The axis of evil, exactly. But the, the Cuban response rhetorically from the state is always to say, well, the United States is the one that is literally training right wing death squads across Latin America. So, like, if anybody is literally <laughs> exporting terrorism, it's the United States. Uh, and I think it's true that we can understand the U.S. as a, a regime that is violently enforcing a, a system of exploitation, as, as Chase was talking about just a moment ago. Um, but then also even to draw in, like, it's true that it's a bit of a metaphor, but also it is kind of literally true. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, the U.S. does actually have whole networks of literal terrorists that exist, like, to kill people like St. Oscar Romero, right? That's that's why that they train them. So uh, it, it might seem like a rhetorical reach, but uh, it does also kind of, you know, get at, like, things that are worth kind of expressing in that way, even though terrorism is like a really loaded term for lots of reasons post 9-11 but uh it's it's worth kind of exploring that way yeah I, I do think they're trying to redefine terrorism from how like the mainstream discourse is because per, perhaps mm -hmm. even mainstream discourse of terrorism obviously serves a particular role in the world right the, yeah. it serves the imperialists rather than undermine imperialist and colonial like reality in the world so so I think one of the main things that they're really trying to say is like terrorism is not just when an individual or three takes a plane and flies it into a building. Um, that might be a, a form of terrorism, but that's just a such a small level, an isolated, you know, micro level of terrorism. When structural terrorism, where you have a, a, of a, a structure of mass death and you have the threat of these nuclear warheads uh, that you can either send underwater or send up in space and, and that that structural power of of terror and terrorism which includes of course the torturing and the kidnapping and the the disappearing and uh the the death squads all that stuff um but i i think they're really trying to say terrorism isn't just like what the united states says is terrorism right i think that's right. part of it and to the other point where there are, you know, small terrorist groups out there. The U.S. literally trained Osama bin Laden in Iraq, sent them into Iran because we wanted to destabilize Iran, and we caught, uh, really contributed to the Iraq-Iran war. And then Osama bin Laden was like, well, hold on, fuck the U.S., right? U.S. imperialism is, is one of the main reasons for our suffering here in Iraq. And so then they send, you know, they hijack two planes, they send them into some towers, they kill 3,000 people. Then we... Uh, or I guess I would say the, you know, George W. Bush, who critiquing Putin, you know, this bad, everyone saw that clip where he was like, uh, what did he say? He, he was like, uh, one man had the audacity to send people into Iraq. I mean, I meant Ukraine, right? Um, <laughs> so this this guy had, had the audacity to, when they killed 3,000 civilians of ours, we went and killed 1.5 million Iraqis um, in the first U.S.-U.K. war. <laughs> 
and another 650,000 civilians um, in the second war against Iraq. So, so I mean, that's a single nation. Part of this chapter was just to really lay out what a massive terror the United States is in the world. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. There's a, a French philosopher who I like to think about and read a lot named Jean Baudrillard, who has a lot to say about terrorism. He wrote a whole book called The Spirit of Terrorism. Um, it's a short book, so not, don't get too excited about it. But there is this sense, uh, th- there's this kind of point he makes a few different places um, about even, like like you said a minute ago, Chase, about nuclear war uh, as, a, as a type of terrorism. You know, it's like this uh, this thing that's supposed to be um, you know, nuclear war is by the existence of nuclear warheads, right? That different countries have them, and so on, right? That uh, that different countries have nuclear warheads. That uh, there's there is an arsenal is supposed to sort of prohibit the use of them because through the you know the idea the idea of de- deterrence, right? No one's going to launch a nuclear weapon at somebody else because it was it would you know create this whole um, you know cascade of other people launching nuclear weapons at them, right? So there's this way that Jean Baudrillard talks about it, though, where that actually just creates a whole a, a mindset of, of terrorism, right? Like um, terror doesn't have to it, it, terror is is using violence to enforce a certain type of behavior, and even through the existence of of like you know different nuclear warheads in all these different places, it's doing just that, right? Just like psychologically, people know that like you're always kind of living in fear of uh, one one country going rogue or whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, expanding the idea of terrorism is uh is, is maybe worth considering uh as a, a rhetorical turn but also just as a helpful description yeah and that term of deterrence too you know whether we're talking about the united states with uh who has the you know uh, there's 10 countries but we have the monopoly on the nuclear warheads basically um across the world or we're talking about internally within the u.s you know deterrence we were raised to think that certain laws that punish certain crimes are all about deter, you know, deterring uh, civilians, particularly black people or working people or um, Latins or indigenous people to not commit certain crimes, right? But it's really, it's not about deterring. You know, uh, the U.S. kind of monopolization of nuclear weapons is not about deterring violence. It's about being in control, about, about dominating. Um, and the same thing could be said internally within the U.S., um, with all of uh, all of our laws that you know are said to uh, be about deterring crime, when really they're about punishing and reproducing colonial rule over black bodies, indigenous bodies, working masses. Yeah, I think that's right, um, and I think that maybe leads into what I appreciated most about the summary you were sharing, um, Chase, just with respect to uh, the common ground of peace. That if you want peace, you have to overcome imperialism. You have to overcome those kind of colonial structures because that's where the reproduction of violence comes, even in the name of (laughs) stopping violence, right? Like there's no way out of the violence cycle in an imperialist uh, global order. And that ground of peace always being the moment where Christians and Marxists or other people get together and and shake hands. I think that is really the the key. I mean, the, the Catholic Church itself kind of found a voice, I think, for peace in the 20th century, and it tied that voice also to uh, ideas of development. Um, some of those ideas are complicated, uh, but the the intuition is there. Uh, the intuition is that if you, if you want peace, you have to sort of think through development or um, 
as a, there's an encyclical popularum progressio that says uh, development is a new name for peace. And there's something about that that is, again, just sort of um, like the CNL is saying, here's a great intuition <laughs> by the church, right? That the only way to uh, achieve peace is, is to create a, a different structure, a, a socioeconomic structure even. Um, but what, what constitutes development? What's a non-exploitative way of doing development? That's the kind of um, thing that the church can't square. And uh, I think, or, or, you know, hasn't yet, I guess, maybe is a better way of putting it. And uh, that is really promising. I think uh, peace is always the the ground on which people who disagree should come together. That's kind of the the point of it. <laughs> and uh, I think when it comes to talking about uh, creating those um, e- even movements uh, that have to have challenging conversations around things like, you know, uh, what's a way forward? What are different strategies and tactics people might be open to? Uh, peace is always the the one kind of binding thing. If you, if you're all kind of going toward peace in an authentic way that's going to really inform the kinds of uh, decisions that you make. Yeah, I think that uh, is a great transition to kind of like wrapping up the conversation, Dean, about really what do we do with this? Because you're right, that is a cool section of that chapter where they're talking about both the Christian and the communist commitment to pursuing and actually historically realizing peace amongst the world. Um, And of course, there are very different political ideologies that suggest um, and and argue for different means of achieving that real peace or even, you know, imagining what that peace a- actually looks like. But for the three of us and, and Matt, um, if you would, maybe you, you want to start us off. Like, what do we what do you think we we do with this text that we just kind of riffed on for the last hour? <laughs> yeah, well, I think this is maybe a meta point about the text and like what it might mean for us. But I think that, um, I mean, there's there's a lot of things to learn from it, for sure, like getting into the weeds of it. I think there's a lot of interesting things to like engage with and to learn from the analysis. I think that's all true, for sure. So there's that, for sure. Uh, the other thing, though, I think that's really fascinating about the book is that it is like something that Dean and I talk about a lot on, on Magnificast is that the ways that uh, leftist Christian movements or, or, or movements where Christians are like, um, engaged with social struggle, like explicitly, like they give you a kind of um, permission to be a different type of Christian in the world. And I think that is maybe my biggest takeaway from this book, right? That there are Christians who are authentically and legitimately um, engaged in in like revolutionary struggle and in, in a struggle for socialism um, in this like long drawn out situation. Um, and I think that like that alone is really fascinating and really important for for Christians in you know the imperial core in, in the United States and in the West and so on, uh, because I don't know I think like you know looking around the United States you see Christianity as uh, a reactionary force I think <laughs> nearly always with with a few uh, with a few exceptions, um, but the the fact that like um, uh, a concerted and organized like socialist Christian movement exists in the world. I feel like it's always kind of like a promissory note that like it could always exist again. It could always exist in a different place. Um, and uh, maybe that's what I'm kind of taking away from it is this maybe this big picture feeling that uh, the Christianity that we have in the United States is not inevitable, but there are other Christianities possible and desirable. And uh, I don't know, um, a, a big picture view, I think uh, worth saying. I like it, Matt. It's good. Um, maybe I like it because, as you said, it's a point that we always make, but <laughs> I think it's a, a good one. 
Um, and uh, just sort of maybe continuing on that, you know, the question of what do we do, being the the one Catholic in this conversation, maybe I could talk about it from what to do with it as a, a Catholic person working in, in that kind of field. I think for me, what it does is also gives you permission to think uh, critically about the compendium of the social doctrine, which is important. It's an important feature of what it means to be a socially engaged Catholic. Uh, and what the CNL is kind of providing is a bit of a model of how to um, put the church's teaching in dialogue with a an ongoing situation, an ongoing revolutionary situation, and seeing you know what what uh, sticks out, what what can be pushed further, what actually is worth praising, what needs to be further investigated. Uh, there's this kind of interesting dialogue happening, um, as we keep saying, with that tradition. And so there's something there that it's a Catholic person I find really instructive. I think sometimes <laughs> I found the the analysis to be a little bit heavy handed or maybe a little uh, putting the the kind of like um, extremely niche reading of history, uh, putting that cart before the horse of uh, <laughs> really getting down to it. But nevertheless, uh, the spirit of the text is to encourage that dialogue and to take what the church says seriously. Um, to take it seriously enough to be willing to uh, have a critical engagement with it. I think that is what the church itself encourages, even though it doesn't always um, deliver on that either. So uh, there's something about that permission, too, that I think is really valuable to have permission to receive what the church says, metabolize it and, you know, find out which parts you want to uh, digest and which parts maybe you want to spit back out <laughs> for a minute and be like, send this back to the kitchen. The cook's got to work on this one a little bit longer, right? Uh, it's a, a really interesting way of um, just sort of uh, creating a space for people, especially oppressed people, to find out whether or not the church's teaching is kind of, um, you know, pushing them forward or, or holding them back on this at that point. And it can be both. It sort of doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, some of the basic things that stuck out to me was, the emphasis on mass struggle and mass participation. I, I don't know. Every single chapter in this book, there's no individualism. There's no heroism as solutions to the fundamental problems of imperialism and to the very real lived experiences and situations and frustrations and kind of exploitation and oppression of the Philippine masses. Um, but also we could expand that to literally any um, group of, of, of exploited and oppressed people in any nation. Uh, there, there is no suggestion that there is some kind of small group of people out there or uh, brilliant uh, geniuses that can solve the problem. The problem is going to be found through the masses being organized um, and, and struggling collectively. So, you know, revolutionary uh, organization. And, and I think that is, is really important for us to hear in the U.S., especially the part about depending upon the masses. It's not something that we're raised to do. It's not something that we're, that we're uh, trained to do, even in seminary or in, in our church spaces. But for at least the CNL and, and I would say, you know, myself as well, for Maoism, but I also I also think this should be fundamental for Christianity as well, is uh, if we want to transform the world, the masses have to transform the world. Um, and then the, the other main point of this whole kind of what to do with this text is just the necessity of connecting all of our struggles here um, within the U.S. to the struggle for anti-imperialism. That even if we wanted to, say, struggle for socialism in the United States and 
And you know, we're, we're going to have to end the settler colonial relation. And there is no future in the world. And, and there is no future kind of sovereign states here uh, unless we also end imperialism. And even the most kind of direct like labor union uh, organizing or tenant organizing or community organizing, if we're organizing tenants or um, people in the sex trade or uh, students uh, at a high school or women on a college campus, right? Uh, No matter who we're organizing, um, our organizing efforts should uh, necessarily be connected to the struggle to crush the contradictions of imperialism across the world. Um, Because none of us, uh, none of the working masses, uh, the exploited and oppressed people within the U.S. or Canada or Venezuela or China or, you know, Iran, you know, Pakistan, no one will be free until we resolve both the internal contradictions and the external contradictions, primarily across the world. The uh, we have to end monopoly capitalism every single summer. Our heat index is going to get hotter and hotter, and we're going to feel that uh, feel that brunt. You know, every year we're going to have um, more people being slaughtered uh, on the streets by police and white fascists here in the U.S. We're going to have uh, new instances where, you know, t- today was baby formula. Maybe uh, tomorrow uh, it's uh, air conditioning, right? You know, who knows how uh, the masses of us will experience our uh, subordination, but I think. For me, one of the main takeaways, again, is to connect our local, our particular struggles, and eventually our national and our proletarian struggle here in the U.S. to the struggle to ending imperialism across the world. Yeah, I like that, Jason. Maybe that's a particular piece to bring out at the end, right? Like, in so many ways, reading this book is kind of a challenge if you are not in the Philippines. Like, it's making reference to all kinds of historical people and situations that you just have no way of knowing about unless you go read a bunch of Wikipedia about it or something, right? Uh, you just we, we don't have the, the context necessarily to enter into it in the same way that a person uh, who has, is formed in that country would. But the one thing that does come through, especially if you're reading it from the imperial core, is that people in these countries, in, in the U.S. or in my case in Canada, have a responsibility as well. Like what's going on here, that that comes through in the text quite clearly, <laughs> that uh, US-led imperialism, of which Canada is a, a happy partner, um, all those kinds of uh, activities are things that we have to organize against in the imperial core. And we can't like, we can't hang our hopes on the CNL to fix that problem for us either, right? And we can't hang our hopes on any other popular movement or state or whatever uh, in the global south to kind of sort that out. That's that's organizing we have to do here. So I, I appreciate you bringing that out, especially at the end, because I think when I was reading it, I was struggling to be like, what is you know, this book is not written for me, so what do I do with it? But I think I'm I was wrong to read it that way. I think uh, <laughs> it, it is written for me in that way, right? It's written for me insofar as like it's a uh, the articulation of what's happening on the underside of the exploitative relationship that make my life possible, and it's important to kind of hear it that way, maybe. Y'all want to have the the last word? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think, um, first of all, (laughs) thanks, Chase, for pressuring us into buying this book and talking to you about it on the podcast. I really (laughs) appreciate it. That's great. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, you know, maybe the... What if we what if we close it out by just doing one one kind of uh, thing that we'll take away from from the chapters that we read or something? Maybe that's a way of bringing it full circle. 
Uh, I think for me, the bit on poverty and inequality that's going to stick with me is uh, really uh, kind of hammering home that there's a materialist explanation for those things. And we should uh, not accept an, an idealist uh, explanation of uh, how those phenomena arise in our societies, precisely so that we can do what we were just talking about, right? Really building an actual movement capable of addressing those material problems. Yeah, um, when it comes to the chapter on capital and labor, I think, um, I don't know, the, the biggest sticking point is just that uh, the church has some really nice ideas, some high-minded um, <laughs> some high-minded ideas. And what's cool about what the CNL does is it takes those ideas seriously, right? That it wants to resolve those tensions, that it wants to uh, overcome class conflict. And it says, well, if you want to do that, this is what you have to do, right? You have to, you actually have to <laughs> commit to a social struggle. So I think that's cool, right? That uh, that these wild socialist Christians are willing to take the church, you know, really seriously. And uh, there's a, there's a type of charity in that, and type of generosity in that, and uh, a type of authenticity in that that uh, is worth uh, learning from. I think. Yeah, and, and I guess from my chapter, uh, for any Christian who's genuinely interested and committed to realizing world peace. Uh, I would say that this chapter really pushes uh, just the necessity of organization, of actually organizing people, um, organizing the masses into, you know, uh, uh, mass democratic organizations where the people can collectively fight uh, for themselves and for one another. I think that is really basic and fundamental. And we, we've gotten away from that. Um, you know, we, we don't have a lot of um, mass organizing here in, in the States right now, but I think that should be a priority of getting people into fighting organizations um, or even just like, you know, fighting their individual manager, their uh, boss, their school board, whatever it is. Um, I think that kind of those kinds of organized struggles can really develop the the a deeper solidarity that goes beyond shallow ways of understanding how we're really in relationship. So, yeah, so mass mass organization is, is pretty fundamental. And I think we'll wrap it up there. All right, so this, uh, again, this is a commentary on the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church by Christians for National Liberation. We will link the book uh, by Foreign Language Press in the show notes. It's a 500-page whopper, and we hope you check it out. Uh, Matt and Dean, thanks for hanging out tonight, dude. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having us on.